As we've heard, today is the third Sunday in Advent, and it's a week in which we focus on the theme of joy or rejoicing. And some of us feel that. Some of you are feeling joy today as you look forward to some time in the next week with family. Uh, I came across a video this week that I think maybe uh, captures Christmas joy perhaps better than anything I've seen in a while. So let's watch this video. Open it, open it, Gavin. Open a present this next week and there's a banana, I'm expecting to see video of you dancing uh, just like that. But of course, most of us know that life is just a little more complicated than that. We know that Christmas is often joyful and yet sorrowful. Some of you will be surrounded by family and chaos and Some of you will be surrounded mostly by memories. I read an article this week called Put the Sad Back in Christmas. And there was a line in the article that just struck me. Listen to this. I wonder if we haul out the happy to force the feelings of sadness further into the dark. But the joke is on us. Real Christmas lives in the dark. Real Christmas is light coming into darkness, where sins and sorrows grow, where thorns infest the ground. And like it or not, we live in the middle. We live somewhere between the time when Jesus came to save us and when he will come to make all things new, to make everything sad come untrue. And in this time in the middle, everything is complicated. And often everything seems dark. But in our text today, we find a message for those who, like us, are caught in the middle. Jesus has come, and we will celebrate that this week. But everything that he accomplished is not yet fully realized. And so the words of our sermon text for today are written to people like us. People in a world mired in darkness and sin and sorrows and thorns to people anticipating Christ's return. From 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, starting in verse 16, this is God's word to us. Rejoice always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not quench the Spirit, do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all. Hold on to what is good. Reject every kind of evil. And may God himself, the God of peace, 
sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful and he will do it. God, your word is true and good. And so may you speak to our hearts today as we consider these words that you have said. May you lead us to find joy and peace in your son, Jesus Christ, today. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen. It might be helpful for us to recognize that these are really the concluding words of Paul's letter to the Thessalonians. They are in many ways a summary of what Paul has said previously. And he weaves them into a handful of critical reminders and encouragements for the listener. Before we deal with the individual components of the passage, I want to give you what I think might be a helpful restating or a helpful summary of our text. And that's this, that God's will is that we live joyful, prayerful, and thankful lives, receiving his word gladly, and that we place our hope in his promises as we await Christ's return. That's, in a nutshell, what Paul has said in our text for today. In other words, God has given us some commands, some instructions, some imperatives for how he desires the Christian to live in this time in the middle. Well, I use the word imperative. What is an imperative? When we use the word imperative as an adjective, it means crucial or critical or important. But as a noun, it means an important instruction, an important command. So God has given these commands, these imperatives for, for us to do as he wraps up this letter, and then he shares some promises for us to believe. So let's look first at what we are called to do, and then we will examine what we are invited to believe. It's probably important to start by pointing out verse 18 of our text. After sharing three things, we find these words. It says, For this is God's will for you, in Christ Jesus. So, so these are the things that God desires you to do. This is how God desires you to live your life. So what is that? First, it says rejoice always. Now this is kind of an abrupt way to begin the passage, isn't it? We might find it more palatable if it were just simply a command to rejoice, but rejoice always? It seems a little seems like a big ask. seems a little harsh. If this were an exam that we must pass, we have, of course, all failed miserably. Sure, most of us have days of deep rejoicing, deep joy, but then we also have those days where we find any sense of joy to be difficult. One day everything is great, we're celebrating life, and then the next day we're focused on everything that is wrong. But it might be helpful for us to recognize that the kind of rejoicing that Paul speaks of here isn't, it's not a constant state of elation and happiness. We see this in another letter that Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, where he dives deeply into his own personal suffering in ministry. He's writing about the suffering and the trials that he's experienced, and, and listen to how he 
describes himself. He says, I am sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Perhaps rejoicing isn't so much about things always being happy, about us being chipper. It's not so much about the absence of sorrow, but more about allowing the deep and abiding joy of Christ into our pain and our suffering. It's about the joy of our salvation and the hope of eternity meeting us, colliding with our struggles, giving us hope and joy even in darkness. And that really is the Christmas story, isn't it? A joyous gathering around a cattle trough as the king of eternity steps into the midst of darkness and mess and sin. As Christians, we don't look for the type of joy that pulls us out of the pain and struggle of this world. We welcome Christ into the pain and the struggle. And he brings joy. His presence leads to rejoicing while at times we are sorrowful. Rejoice always. The second instruction that we have is to pray continually. Pray continually. Again, when we hear these words from verse 17, we should sort of respond initially in repentance, right? Because we know that we don't pray continually. I don't know what your experience with prayer is like, but in my experience, it's one of the most challenging aspects of the Christian faith. I'm so easily distracted. My mind is pulled in a thousand directions. I'm reminded of an interview with Dr. Tim Keller as he was nearing the end of his cancer journey. He was interviewed on a podcast that I listened to, and he says in many ways he was thankful for his cancer that was at that point, was nearly killing him. And he was thankful for his cancer because he said, it taught me to pray. It's been said that this instruction to pray without ceasing has less to do with formal times of prayer and more to do with staying in a posture and a spirit of prayer. It's a perspective in which we realize that our own understanding, our own wisdom, our own answers and solutions to what comes our way in life are insufficient, that we in all things need help from our Heavenly Father. It's in many ways prayer without ceasing. Praying continually is living in the posture of repentance, that I am insufficient and that I need Christ and His sufficiency. The beautiful thing is that when we are living in Repentance, when we know that we can't actually pray continually, when we confess our distractedness and our self-reliance to the Lord, we are, we are then free to see these words as invitation. Because Christ has met the demand on our behalf. We are free to pray, not to check a box, not to meet a demand, but because prayer is relationship with God. Rejoice always. Pray continually. Third, we see this. Give thanks in all circumstances. And yet again, these words cause us a bit of pain when we hear them, right? We dare not take the approach that these words, which reveal God's will, 
are simply God saying, do your best to give thanks in all circumstances. That God merely wants us to put a little effort into it. No, God says what he means. Our view of scripture won't allow us to view these words as God just saying, hey, do your best. No, this is a, this is a word from the Lord. This is a command from God to give thanks in all circumstances. And God means what he says. That we should, we ought to give thanks in everything. But once we have confessed that our hearts are by nature not inclined to give thanks in every circumstance, once we've been reminded of God's mercy to us in Christ, the one who was perfectly thankful, we can then again begin to see these words as invitation. God's will is that you are rejoicing, prayerful, and thankful, not only so that you're convicted of your sin and see your need for a Savior, but also because God knows that that's what's best for us. He knows that life is better when you are living in prayerful relationship with your Creator, when you are rejoicing even in difficult circumstances. He knows that life is better when your posture is one of thankfulness rather than entitlement. It's better for you. It's better for those who are around you. There are two more of these commands that show up in our text that I want to share with you today. The fourth one is this, to receive God's word. We find this in verses 19 through 21. It says, do not quench the spirit. Do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all. Hold on to what is good. This instruction to receive God's word might not be as readily apparent when you read the text. We have to realize this was an era in which they didn't have the New Testament in front of them like we do. They were trying to figure out how to do church and how to live the Christian life. And this was also an era in which many people were claiming to have a word from the Lord. And so Paul gives some clarification here. His instruction is this. Don't quench, don't extinguish the Holy Spirit speaking. The Holy Spirit is... God himself calling and speaking and leading and comforting his people. Don't extinguish that. Don't silence the Holy Spirit. And flowing out of that is verse 20. He says, don't treat prophecies with contempt. We see in God's word essentially two types of prophecy. There's the type of prophecy that foretells future events. We hear many of those this time of year from the prophet Isaiah, for example foretelling the Messiah. But by and large, when you hear of prophecy in Scripture, the vast majority of prophecy in Scripture is more declaring, thus saith the Lord. And oftentimes, for example, in the Old Testament, it's God saying, get your act together. Clean yourselves up. Fix your, your mess. Re generally, repent. When we hear prophecy in the Bible, the vast majority of the time, it's not foretelling the future. It's declaring what God is saying. Every sermon contains this type of prophecy. When the preacher goes beyond the direct explanation of the word into a message of how that word intersects with your life and your situation in practical ways. That is a type of prophecy. In our current era, we have the New Testament, which is 
sufficient for life and for salvation. And so we rely less upon those types of prophecies that the New Testament churches did. God has given us his word, and we believe that he has spoken fully in his word. If you've been a Christian for about five minutes, you know that every message that you hear isn't worth listening to. There are many who claim to be teaching the Bible who are really more interested in money or manipulation. There are others who are driven by a political agenda that forms their spiritual teaching, and you can find them on both sides of the political spectrum. Paul encourages these Christians in Thessalonica and ultimately us today to receive God's word as it comes to them, but to not receive it blindly. He says, test what you hear. Hold it up alongside of scripture and examine it. This isn't an encouragement toward being cynical or critical, but to be careful, to receive God's word, but to test those from whom you receive it and to hold on to what is good. And that takes us directly into the final command, the instruction imperative that we find in our text, and that's this, to reject evil. We see this in verse 22, reject every kind of evil. We test all that we hear against the standard of God's word. We hold on to what is good and we reject every kind of evil. You, you can make the argument that the text is an instruction dealing specifically with evil teaching, but we can also read it in a more generic sense, that we are to hold on to the good which is taught, but we are to reject all sorts of evil that we encounter. So Paul has given us this summary of God's will for our lives, that we would rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, receive God's word, reject evil. And then our text turns our attention to a set of promises. Promises that point our eyes forward to Christ's return in which he will finish all that he has begun. It starts in verse 23, and it's actually sort of a benediction or a blessing that contains these promises. In verse 23, may God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. So let's look briefly at these promises. The first one is that he will sanctify you. As our text says, he will sanctify you through and through, or completely, fully. What is sanctification? You'd have to go back to confirmation class. In confirmation, we teach from Luther's small catechism that sanctification is the gracious work of the Holy Spirit by which he daily renews me more and more in the image of God through word and sacrament. It's a daily work. What is sanctification? What does it mean that God will sanctify us? It's God working in our lives daily, making us more like Jesus. And here's what's so important when we think about sanctification. We are prone to think about salvation being something that God does, and then I get to work in sanctification. But that's not how Paul teaches sanctification. He says 
God himself will sanctify you through and through. God is the active party in these promises that we find in our text for today. God himself, the God of peace, is the one who does the sanctifying work, who makes us more like Jesus. The second promise that we see is this. He will keep you. He is keeping us. Think about that word. It says, may your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The only way that we could ever be kept blameless, sinless, holy, forgiven, is through the gift of God's grace to us in Christ. If it was up to you to stay blameless, to stay holy, you would lose it every time. But God has promised that he will keep you blameless, sinless, forgiven. He is the active party. He is holding on to us. He is the one who will do it. And just in case we haven't gotten the point of where he's going here, he sums it up with kind of these final two promises wrapped into one. He is faithful and he will do it. You see what Paul has done in this passage. He laid God's law upon us. Rejoice always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all things. We all feel sort of, sort of the weight of those words that we could never rejoice always. We could never pray continually. That we could never give thanks in all things. He's made it clear that we don't do these things. We don't rejoice as we should. We don't pray as we should. We don't give thanks as we should. He has pointed us to God's word, admonished us to reject all that is evil. And then finally, he, he concludes this letter by delivering the goods, by pointing our eyes to the one who has done all that God has commanded. He focuses our attention on the faithfulness of God and says he is faithful. He will do it. He will lead you to rejoicing. He will draw you into prayer. He will grow thankfulness in your heart. He will keep you blameless at the coming of our Lord. Paul is attempting to build our expectancy, our anticipation of Christ's return when we will be able to one day say that we do rejoice in all things, that we do pray continually, that we do give thanks in everything. Here's the amazing thing. Those things that we are called to do that are so impossible in and of ourselves it's the very work that God is doing within us. They are, we might say, the fruit of the gospel. When we're focused on what Christ has done, when we look to Christ's finished work for us, when we're focused on what he has promised to return and accomplish, the natural result of that is rejoicing. Right? You can't understand this season and not in some part of you, even in the midst of sorrow and darkness, not in some part of you be led to rejoice. If I really believe that Jesus Christ was born in Bethlehem, that he lived a perfect life, that he went to the cross and died for my sin and 
conquered death on my behalf. And if I really believe that, if I actually believe that he's coming again, judgment over sin and death and evil, that he's going to rule and reign as king forever, how could there not be a part of me that responds by rejoicing? A couple weeks ago, I quoted from Lutheran pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and I want to share, he, he wrote extensively about Advent. Advent and, and the message of the Christmas season was really his great hope while in a Nazi prison camp. And in December of 1943, he wrote a letter to his fiancée, Maria. They ultimately would never end up being able to be married. He wrote these words to Maria. He said, I think we're going to have an exceptionally good Christmas. Let the weight of that sink in. It's a pretty good idea he's never getting out of the prison camp. He's seeing every day what has happened to people just like him. I think we're going to have an exceptionally good Christmas. I used to be very fond of thinking up and buying presents, but now that we have nothing to give, the gift God gave us in the birth of Christ will seem all the more glorious. The poorer our quarters, the more clearly we perceive that our hearts should be Christ's home on earth. In other words, when we believe the gospel, the natural result is rejoicing. His, his circumstances on this side of eternity never got better. If you remember the story, he was killed by the Nazis just a couple of weeks before his prison camp was liberated. Never got better on this side of eternity for Bonhoeffer. But when we, when we believe the gospel, the natural result is rejoicing. I think we're going to have an exceptionally good Christmas. It's the fruit that God can and does work in our hearts, in our lives. In fact, the comforts we experience, the plenty that we enjoy, the things that we might call blessings today may actually be the things that prevent us from rejoicing, from praying, from giving thanks. Our abundance, our wealth, our comfort may be that which steals these things from us. But the good news of Christmas is that our eternal salvation doesn't depend on our ability to perform, and it doesn't even depend on our circumstances. Your hope for eternity doesn't hang on your perfect rejoicing, praying continually, deep abiding thankfulness, but upon Christ and Christ alone. The message of Christmas is that Jesus came and was all of those things perfectly on my behalf. Do we aim for them? Of course. Do, do we work and discipline ourselves to rejoice more, to pray more, to give thanks more? Of course we do. But we never look to those things for our hope and for our salvation. We look to Christ alone. We look to the manger where God took on flesh and made his dwelling among us. And we look forward to that day when he will come in glory. Why? 
Because Paul has reminded us, he is faithful and he will do it. He will do all that he has promised to do. As we heard in our Advent reading earlier, those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. He will, he will turn mourning into joy. He will comfort and give gladness for sorrow. God's will is that we live joyful, prayerful, thankful lives. That we receive his word gladly and that we place our hope in his promises as we await Christ's return. We rejoice in his promises because he is faithful. And he will do it. Let's pray. God, we confess that we don't rejoice as we should. That we don't pray continually. That we aren't thankful in every situation. That we don't receive your word and reject evil as you have instructed us. And that's just the beginning of the many ways that we have sinned against you. We confess today that we are sinners through and through. We've sinned against you in thought, in word, and in deed. By the things that we have done and by those things that we have neglected to do. We're grateful for the promise that Jesus came to save sinners. Sinners like us. We're grateful that Jesus' perfect life is given to us as gift, credited to us as if it were our righteousness. So Lord, when we, when we think about your promises, lead us to respond in rejoicing in every situation, even in, even in seasons of deep darkness. Lord, for some of us who are struggling this week, may we be like Paul, sorrowful and yet always rejoicing. Make us people who, who pray continually, who work and create a spirit of thankfulness within us. We, we thank you that our hope and our assurance is, is found not in what we have done or what we could ever do, but in what Christ has done for us. And so we give you thanks that you are faithful. That we can live and we can die confidently, knowing that you will do what you have promised. So may we live in that confidence today and each day that you have before us as we await Christ's return to make all things new. So come, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.